Welcome to Why the Long Face, two old friends lifting the lid on mental health over a beer with author and psychiatrist Paul Keedwell and business consultant and so-called comedian Ollie Turnbull. Hello everyone and welcome to Why the Long Face, yes. third season, third episode. How are you, how are you doctor? I'm not too bad, thank you. Yeah, I've been uh, staying active. Excellent. As best I can. Yeah. Excellent. And we've had beautiful sunny weather here in London for the last for the bank holiday weekend, the Easter weekend. So that has put a little bit of a a nice upside to some pretty grim figures coming through on COVID. Yeah, we should we should point out we're recording this on the 13th of April. So uh, all these episodes in the COVID era were sort of time stamping. And where are we? We're 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 very close to the thousand day deaths, aren't we? We're over eleven thousand deaths. We are heading for being possibly the worst affected nation in uh, the western world certainly in europe but a yeah it's not looking great no it's going to be really interesting listening back to this as well how bad it gets or 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 whether we relatively Mm. escape but uh, at the moment just for the record yeah horrible times nearly a thousand deaths a day in the uk and like you say looking like we might be the worst in europe slash the world so we're trying to keep our spirits up um yeah our prime minister is out of hospital, um, which mm. is good news uh, on, on the human level. Some, something politically differently, but we are definitely not going into that. But we have a special episode, don't we, my friend? We do. Uh, just before we move on, I just want to say there has been some good news in London, hasn't there? Oh, uh, yes. The rate of admission has levelled off in London, but hopefully the other regions will follow suit. But yeah, we've got a very special episode in that this is the first one to do as we promised in season three which is to invite an expert guest on to the program and today we are going to talk to mark bradley he's going to introduce himself in a minute or yeah all i mean i suppose we could say that he's a he's a, a gentleman who flies the world and is a specialist in trauma so i guess we should say hello mark hi mark how are you doing hi paul Hi, Ollie. How are you doing? I know under normal circumstances, we'd be having to pay you thousands an hour. Uh, but uh, <laughs> hang on, have we have we, um, have we we actually said we're do- he's doing it for free? Anyway, we'll talk about that after. It's the horrible commercial. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> we'll see how much money's left over after I've been paid. <laughs> That's right. Never any suggestion that I'm paid. Never any suggestion that I'm paid. No, of course not. <laughs> Mark, sorry, please give us a, a thumbnail on, on your world, your life, where you fit in. Okay, uh, my world, what do I do for a job? Well, I, I come from the sort of standard background of working in the NHS. I'm a psychotherapist and a counsellor. Uh, but then I uh, took a, a sabbatical and went to work for Médecins Sans Frontières in Indonesia uh, a few weeks after the giant tsunami hit it, uh, eight, nine years ago now. I did that for six months, setting up psychological clinics to deal with the trauma. And then when I came back, uh, someone picked up on it and employed me. And I now work for myself doing the same job. Uh, And I have a number of private clients, uh, tourism, unfortunately, uh, NGOs. I do a lot of work with NGOs. And when something horrible happens, usually an incident, a singular event, as it were, rather than the COVID stuff, uh, they ask my advice. Sometimes I get to fly there to go to wherever it's happened and try and help and support the people and the organization around the psychological effects of a critical incident, as we call them. I also train NGOs at hostile environment training. So I I talk with them about 
what it's like to live and work in a hostile environment from the stressful side of it, uh, usually places like Syria, uh, things like that. But uh, I guess we're all kind of living in a hostile environment at the moment. Exactly. We are living in a, in a kind of a hostile environment, a kind of what feels like a war with increasing numbers of critically ill people in the population and a lot of fear, I guess, about people's health and safety. All. Exactly. I mean, that, that was the first thing we wanted to get your opinion on, Mark, is, is from your experience of these, what you call the major single events that happen over the, over the globe that you get flown out to, which is, from my perspective, amazingly impressive. What, what are the, the similarities to what you're used to facing in the field and what's happening to us, particularly in the Western nations and the US, but all over the world at the moment? Is there, are, are there parallels that you see? I think there is a, the, I mean, the big, the main one, which is a big driver for how people are feeling, I, I imagine, is death. Uh, the thing about having a virus that's going around is that it's actually killing people. And it's likely to be killing people that either you know or you are friends of a friend of them. So that, that feeling of death that's uh, around is very much sort of like the instance I deal with. There's a fear of death and there is real death and people are seeing it and it's on the news a lot. And as human beings, part of our, our makeup, our, our psychology, is that we pay attention when other humans die because it's very important to us. And you might think that sounds, well, that's fine, we should, but we don't necessarily pay attention at a, a very high cognitive level. Part of what we understand is going on. Yes, we're in hospital. Yes, it's a virus. Yes, it's there. But part of it is also a, a much more basic level, fearful. A human being's died. I'm a human being. I can die. So I think there'll be that driving it. And the other big thing is I'm used to dealing with one-off events. So everything from a, a car bomb to an earthquake, and they're over quite quickly. And that brings around a specific type of reaction. This isn't over quickly, and it's not going to be over quickly. No, it's not a severe, acute reaction, is it? It's not as severe as perhaps being um, uh, involved in a near-death experience. So it's not something quite quick, and it's happened. But it's chronic. It's a long-term thing. And chronic stress and chronic anxiety is, is actually more difficult to deal with than the Big Bang effect where you go in and you can work with that. Things that go on over a long time get embedded. And I, I foresee after this, there'll be a lot of work to do. Yeah, so Mark, what sort of things do you think we'll see further on down the line? The actual threat's gone with the effects of that chronic anxiety. So I guess we're talking about agoraphobia, perhaps, or depression, those sorts of conditions. Maybe dependence on alcohol. We're hearing more and more about people uh, uh, taking, you know, drinking more than they normally do uh, during this lockdown and I wonder if part of that is is a kind of self-medicating process it's actually covering up something which then might lead on to an addiction problem that I mean that's a, that's a really good point uh, I think from my point of view what will happen is say let's just let's just think we're on a, a dial on a speaker we're not going to go up to 11 we'll keep it to 10 and our normal day is usually about three and then if something big happens, we yeah. go up to 10 and react like that. Something like this might have us going along at, say, a 7. And then we get used to it right. being 7. So you can be yeah. quite stressed. You'll know yourself. You can be quite stressed and, and be physiologically measured as being quite stressed, but not feel stressed. But you mm. are. 
And my concern is that that won't go away. So even when they say, oh, lockdown's over, come on, we can get out. People will be hypervigilant. I think their sleep will be affected. They'll feel still feel yeah. vulnerable, maybe helpless and a bit hopeless. Those feelings will remain. And I think these will drag out. I think, interestingly, the alcohol one is a, is a really interesting one because you might be doing it for fun, but, of course, it could just be masking a fear and then you become used to using it to keep the fear at bay. Yeah. I've noticed actually, Mark, you talk a lot about fear. Uh, and it, does does that word encompass the, the the trigger for lots of the problems that, that, that people see? Either we talk about the difference between acute and chronic, but is it almost like uh, anxiety generated through fear that is your specialism through, through trauma? Uh, and does that explain why you use the word fear quite a lot? Uh, yes, and, and, and because if you look at really powerful reactions, uh, the thing we see in a queue, it, it's the closeness to death is a, is a good one. How close was I to either being killed or seeing someone's killed or what's what happened? And that generates a lot of fear. And when we get mm. scared, when we, uh, I think we have a, a huge amount of changes within the body, physiological change as well, because of course we're and I know you've done some stuff on this already, we're getting into the fight and flight stage because there's a threat. Effectively, there's a bear. We just can't see the bear. And that will have physiological changes. And I think that they will stay quite raised. And I think it, it, it is fear. What's going to happen in the future? I mean, we're on lockdown every two weeks here. This is when we get our, our notice. It's going to come through tonight whether we're going to be locked down again. And two weeks is is a deliberate policy, I believe, because as humans, we find it quite difficult to imagine things happening to us in an emotional way beyond two weeks. We can plan ahead, but beyond two weeks, we get a bit wishy-washy about it. So I think they're doing it two weeks because it's, it's a nice bite-sized chunk. If they came and said, mm. not going to be allowed out for two months, I think there might be a bit more trouble trying to police that. Mm, I agree. So I just want to pick up on something that you said, all, which was um, that you said Mark deals in anxiety caused by fear. But I've always understood fear to be the cognitive or the thinking aspect of anxiety. In other words, there's always fear. The, the thought that leads to the, the physiological response and the awareness of being anxious, it's always of the form of, oh God, this might happen. But I guess with, with Mark, he's dealing... And that's why it's so relevant to a discussion about COVID is he's dealing specifically with fear about death most of the time. Whereas you might worry about embarrassment. It's funny. There's another thing, another dimension to it, which I'd like both your opinions on. But but Paul, you've just made me think, right? Are, is the difference between, because to me, you're, you, you know, you're both professionals dealing with almost at different ends of, of, the, of the same thing. And it's it's funny we're listening to you both well they overlap actually uh, absolutely because because mark, mark seems to deal very much more in in justified fear <laughs> fear that's that's very real and very justified whereas you will deal with that as well but i guess you'll also deal with the un, the, the 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 fears that are a little bit illogical or, or seem illogical or amplified out of proportion um, right. as well uh, I'm, I'm wondering is that something that distinguishes well i think the real value in what mark does is to be able to go into a situation where people are having an acute stress reaction to a an exceptional circumstance, usually a life-threatening one, and saying the physiological responses that you're having are part of a normal process. Mm-hmm. 
that you're not going crazy, that this is something that mm. happens after a trauma. This is how long you should expect this to go on for. This, what, this is what a normal psychological reaction to trauma looks like. And then if someone's reaction to that trauma persists or because of his experience, he knows it's outside of the normal bounds of, of, a, of a normal reaction, he then might refer on to someone like myself and say, okay, look, actually, maybe this person had pre-existing conditions that made mm-hmm. him more susceptible to conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or panic disorder, which persists beyond the time you'd normally expect people to start to, to adjust. Is that right, Mark? No, you're perfect. I mean, that, that's exactly uh, what we do. And it's, it's, this does lend itself to the COVID. It, it's normalisation. It's that these are normal reactions in an abnormal event. And so if people are feeling, at present, are feeling hopeless or they're not sleeping well, or they're very anxious, one of the things I'd be saying to them is, yes, you're not used to feeling like this, but they are normal reactions to an abnormal event. And as human beings, actually, we're really good at dealing with things like this. But you, knowing that, I've found in my experience, when you start to explain the physiological sides, the cognitive sides and the emotional sides, people can take that sort of deep breath and go, oh, okay, so this is just how we react as humans. Fine, what do I need to look after myself? And that's sort of where I come in. That must be very rewarding, Mark. If you've got someone who's having an extreme reaction and you're able to comfort them by saying, yes, exactly. It's like you're having a temperature because you've got a, a bacteria inside you. This is totally normal. Do you see a sense of relief in these poor people who've suffered so awfully? And is that a massive re- rewarding experience for you? It's, I mean, <clears throat> so I, I do individual, but I quite like group work where you get a group of individuals who've gone through something. I think this would be really important within the NHS uh, post-event is getting people together in groups and you you start to do the group work and you try and guide them and they talk about their experience and then what happens is people are a bit quiet about something go oh hang on your heart was racing at that moment or you're not sleeping well oh and it normally suddenly they're going oh it's not just me and actually uh-huh. that's when it's really rewarding when you see them talk to each other and suddenly work out oh phew, because as Paul said earlier in this, sometimes people actually think they're losing their mind a bit because the reactions can be so powerful and then they don't know what to do with them. And then when you give them a sort of straightforward answer and say, you understand you know, butterflies in your tummy, racing thoughts, but feeling quite nervous. These are the normal reactions we have when threatened. And that's what's happening. Yeah, and I think, you know, you you summed up perfectly there. The therapeutic nature of groups in that Mark, through his facilitation of that group, can help people to learn off each other Mm -hmm. and to feel that their psychological reactions are not just their own. These are actually universal responses to Mm -hmm. that kind of trauma. I never made such a clean connection between the work that both of you do other than to say it's almost as if Mark is looking at the extreme and comforting people that they are they are normal uh, and and Paul you're looking more at the where where it falls into the arena of the abnormal reaction and that may be an interesting or useful demarcation between the work that you both both do I think that's really uh, quite clean I like that I do have another question, Mark, uh, 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 and it's something I've asked Paul before, and uh, and I think it's you know it's something that he's he's had to manage, and that is um, is there 
a time when you, you you take it on your shoulders yourself the stress from your I, I don't want to call them patients really I suppose call clients call them clients um, and is there a is there ever a danger particularly in a, in an extreme situation where you can absorb some of the stress into yourself and are you able to use the methods you use on your clients on yourself when when you're in situations which I can only imagine are terrifying and would I'd run a mile from. It depends to a certain extent. Because of the nature and the training I've had for the work that I do now, when I turn up, I, I have a general feeling that I'm there to help. And you do get quite a lot of good feedback quite quickly. So you get that nice little reward cycle going around that you're doing something good. And so and I had some you know, very, very good trainers and, and mentors when I was in the NHS. And one of them said something that all stuck with me, which was, and now it could be hard, Mark, but actually just turning up, just turning up and trying to help is useful for them. And I thought, okay, right, that takes the pressure off me. Just being there, hmm. just, just being able to support them and say, I get it, it's, it's grim. I'm doing something. And then you, you build from that. Well, in the NHS, it was harder, I have to say, getting client after client on sort of a session after session. I worked with children then as well. And I still say now, if I have to go to an incident that's, that's children are dealing with a family, that's the one where it's, it's quite difficult. But then I have a good support network here and I know it's going to be difficult. And I know what to look out. I mean, I know I'm stressed at the moment on the lockdown. I don't feel stressed. <laughs> if someone asks me without my knowledge, I might be like, no, I feel fine. But I know I am because I can see the little signs in me that are always a, a sign of stress with me. So I'm thinking, okay, you just need to be aware of that, Mark. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's right. I think uh, people I talk to they'll say, yeah, I'm not consciously aware that I'm panicking or anything like that, mm. or even that I'm fearful. But yeah, maybe I'm waking up a bit earlier than normal, or I'm having a bit more indigestion than normal. You know, uh, yeah, or, or or that or that skin complaint that I get occasionally that seems to have uh, sprung up. You know, that I've had a bit of an, a psoriasis attack or something like that. Uh, but, um all these physical manifestations that you're just running at, as you say, at seven rather than three. I mean, I, I do think that um, in our professions, all we're bound to take some of the stress home. And I think it's a skill learning to let go at the end of the day. And we're using those anxiety control te- techniques on ourselves. But also it's interesting when Mark said about it being difficult when you've, you're turning up to see someone who day in, day out, is very distressed and you feel their helplessness uh, transferring onto you in a way yeah. because you're not seeing any objective improvement but actually you're helping the, the healing process over time and things would be worse for them if you weren't uh, a familiar face i mean in a sense i guess that's that's the same in any job you have a problem that that, that doesn't go away and that causes stress in, in in any line of work you're right you you have um don't you uh ways of categorizing problems within a system and they can equally be applied to the problems of treating an individual in a system called the nhs mm. and some of the problems within that system can be identified and are solvable but some are not solvable some of them are what you call irrational problems right in, in, in my work we do a lot of project work and that can be 
equally frustrating in that you can't move forward and it's your responsibility to move forward so you find yourself in a place where uh, you have no control over the situation that you're responsible for and i think that stress is just as real i think with what you guys do yeah. there's the added element obviously of, of watching human suffering which i know i'd struggle with and i think you, you i guess you've got to work on on, on setting yourself aside aside from that uh, and no but your job. description there of having a a, a project where, where where you're trying to solve something but something is equally pushing back and making it impossible is a good metaphor i think probably for how we're all feeling during lockdown right now 100 percent. when you said something then I, i've been thinking about this at the beginning uh about control and it's interesting isn't it that you know you're talking about your role oliver and when you start to feel that you haven't got control and it's the same with the COVID. I think one of the things that's going to be pushing that is that sense of control of our destiny is, is being diminished. Yeah. You know, people go, oh, you know, we're going to fight it. We're going to do this. It's, it's a very emotive <laughs> word. You can't. And, and yeah, you can't yeah. fight it. And I think people no. hear those words. And for all the people who might say, oh, it sounds good. A lot of people also think, how do I, how do I fight a pandemic? The doctors fight a mm. pandemic, the nurses fight a pandemic, the care home people fight a pandemic. I'm just waiting to not be a victim or be a victim. And that lack of control is a, is a real driver for things like anxiety and depression. Yes. Do you remember all the work on locus of control? Yeah. <laughs> where your locus of control is, whether it's yeah. internal or external. Mm. And right now, it's external. You know, yeah. we don't we don't feel in control and that's that's shown to lead to to to, to worsening psychological health oh what does it mean Did, what does it mean locus of control just explain exactly the locus part where's the agency that's controlling your destiny is it you and your decisions and your will and your strategies and your action or is it something else that you can't control which is outside of you Ah. And of course, ultimately, we're, we're completely dependent, as Mark says, on all these other professionals. And ultimately, uh, some pharmaceutical company coming up with an effective vaccine for, for us to be able to resume control again of our lives. Imagine if you're single at the moment and wanting to date and find a relationship. You can't, can you? You can't restore that, that control right now. Maybe your your business idea was to do to take a podcast, take it around the country, and have uh, public presentations. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's gone. I've got control over that anymore. I, you know, the, mo the most stressed I feel, Paul Mark, uh, is when I look at uh, you, you know yeah. I like my numbers, and you like your numbers as well, Paul, and Mark likes the numbers. And we look at the numbers, and we're trying to mm. see things in it which gives a, gives a positive message. And you'll and you'll say to me, it doesn't look right. It doesn't look good on the if you do the seven day average. And I'm like, I'm, I'm tempted to go. I don't want to do the fucking seven day average because it's going to make me feel worse, Paul. And your bloody and your science and your logic. And then I do the seven day. And I do the seven day. Oh Christ, he's right. It looks shit. Oh my god. And I, I look at my graphs and I think I can't make these graphs go down. Interestingly, I'm talking uh, with the hospitals, and one of the things that's coming back is all these professionals seeing people going into ICU, going onto ventilators and feeling helpless because there's nothing they can do. So that once mm -hmm. they're on the ventilator, they're, they're saying they're getting put back. I know all I'm doing is waiting. I'm just waiting and watching and waiting and watching. And all my skills, all my training comes to nothing in the face of this. So that's some of the feedback we're getting back that's going to have to be dealt with after this, just about the people who are actually dealing with it. So it's not just... You know, us people at home feeling like that. The people who really know what they're doing, trained for decades and have got this nailed on, 
who are also facing this abnormal event. And so we're, we're getting feedback from them, that control, just going. Yeah. So what happens in my game, lads, in the game of management consultancy, where we're not really doing anyone any good, uh, is we take things like this from, from medicine, uh, life sciences generally, and from academia, and then we weave them into our next PowerPoint to make ourselves look clever. I shit you not. So locus of control is something that will feature on a PowerPoint presentation that I will be doing within the next, within the next well, let's say, two weeks. I have another question for Mark. Oh, by the way, before I do that, uh, were you of the perfect age to remember MASH, the TV series? Yes. Uh, and for the young, youngsters, uh, apologies. One of my favourite characters is the psychiatrist who comes in to make sure that they're not all cracking up. Uh, he comes in, you know, he's maybe in two or three episodes a, a season. And uh, listening to you, Mark, you sound like that guy. He's got quite a cool role in that he comes in and sort of doctors the doctors, as it were. He's a meta-doctor, as it were. Uh, and it seems with Alan Alda were always were always great because Alan Alda would crack wise and the guy would understand that he's hiding some psychological stress. It was, I I love MASH. Anywho, my question is this, Um, as I understand it, Mark, from uh, uh, hearing about what you do and and, and researching what you do, you sometimes work in places where there'll be military involvement, I'm imagining. And does that mean that you you get involved with people of a military bent who are suddenly subject to a massively traumatic event in a in a um, in a in a sort of like you say a one off massive event, and they are trained uh, and they are of a personality type which should make them almost invulnerable to stress, and they feel like they're invulnerable to stress, and so they, do they have the sort of double whammy of having adverse and extreme reactions at the same time as not understanding them because I'm tougher than this. I'm a big, tough soldier. I'm a Royal Marine, so we, we don't suffer from these. But So does that almost, in a sense, make it worse for them in that they're supposed to be tough uh, and, and they're, they're not used to signs of stress and therefore signs of stress in them when they're extreme are even more bewildering, if, if you like. It, it does. It's, I mean, I'm flying back through in my head thinking of loads of examples of these people uh, over the last 10 years plus. Right, right, right. What I would say is in the first instance, they're a lot better now. On hostile environment courses, we inevitably have usually special forces, ex-special forces doing it. And they're much more switched on now. They're much more switched on to, to the things I've seen, the things I've done have left me in a vulnerable state. So you get that side of it. When people are actually involved in the situation, of course, they might be able to went off to Afghanistan recently, work with the guards there, but they're actually dealing with it. And I think... They acknowledge it can exist, but there's a fear that if they allow that vulnerability to come in, they won't be able to do their job. And if they can't do their job, then their lives and the people they're looking after are threatened. So I think there's that balance. One of the most stressed people I met was a pilot, uh, and he was ex-RAF, as they all are, or tended to be. But his job in the RAF was teaching pilots who were captured about interrogation, about resisting, about what you do. And when I met him, he was falling apart. He hadn't been in the hour for ages. And I always remember him saying to me at the beginning, but I'm not stressed, Mark. I know how to deal with stress. It's what I did for a living. <laughs> and I looked at him and I went, oh, mate, you're stressed. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> and when we went through it and explained it to him, and he suddenly thought, oh, I thought it'd be something big that would get me. 
you know, I thought it was the big acute thing. And that's what I've been trained for. Actually, it was a breakup of a relationship, a hostile environment at work, things that he thought he could just cope with. And he hadn't been able to cope with them at all. Right. So again, it's the chronic over the, over the acute. One of the problems, of course, was because he thought he didn't get stressed or could deal with stress and his concept of what stress was, he had just ignored all these things. And, t- and the reason I got to see him was he was driving to work and had to phone up work and said, I can't fly the plane. Driving to work. And he'd been feeling like this for weeks. Yeah. So because he didn't think it would affect him. But it does. Of course it affects you. Wow. Yeah. So I suppose we're back to the situation of the chronic stress of COVID. What lessons do you think that we can give to people listening, Mark, um, about uh, managing the chronic over the acute? You know, that's such a big question. I mean, the first thing I would say is you're at home, you've got a laptop, get get onto your favorite search engine because there are some brilliant pieces of advice out there just of what to do. So the answers are all there and it's nothing big. So for instance, myself, the things that I'm doing, uh, I'm regulating exercise. So I've started exercising more, smaller amounts, so it's shorter, half an hour rather than try to do an hour, but I try and do it every day. Uh, I am watching what I'm eating a bit more, uh, being careful about that. When I have a weekend, I go Monday, Friday, jobs, stagger them what I'm going to be doing. Come Saturday, Sunday, I treat it as Saturday, Sunday, it's my weekend off. So I actually plan it differently. So I'm trying to have, back to exactly what Paul was saying, I can't control what's happening with the virus. That's other people's work. But I can control what I can do within this limited environment. So very simple step. <laughs> Apart from what your three-year-old's doing behind you. <laughs> yeah, carry on, Mark. Carry on. Yeah, I, I did child psychotherapy for decades and I've got no idea. Anyway, <laughs> I think it's an outline, mate. I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> anyway, so simple things like this, this. This is not deep, big psychology. I think... When we come out of this, there will certainly be a call for much more of the sort of tier work that Paul does, the higher level stuff. I think for now, it's about looking at what you can control that's around you and making the most of that. I would also, I mean, I had to because I just couldn't sleep with the work that I had. It was, you know, I was mm. constantly mulling them over and had very bad sleep. And so I had to learn deep breathing and visualization. Uh, right. And so now, if I go to bed, as, as my beautiful partner will tell you when she gets very annoyed, two to five minutes and I can be pretty much asleep. Mm. Because I start doing it naturally. And of course, I mean, I know to do it, but if I'm really anxious or worried about something, the deep breathing is not going to work. But it'll slow me down to think about what I need to do. So lots of really good, simple uh, techniques out there. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I, I think, you know, that, that tallies with what we were saying before about controlling your breathing being a very, very important part mm. of controlling your anxiety levels. And then mindfulness techniques we talked about as well. Yeah. But, uh, I, I, something that um, really sort of leapt out there was in what you were saying was um, just control what you can control. 
which is, mm. I guess, your own your own physiological response, which you can control with meditation and breathing, and so and your immediate environment, uh, and do your best, you know, until this is all over. And I guess have some faith that things will, I mean, things will absolutely sort themselves out eventually. I think I absolutely have faith in uh, our scientists to be able to to nail this. You know, I mean, we've seen how successfully it's. Uh, being controlled in other parts of the world but also we will develop a vaccine at some point in the future i think i think that's the other thing isn't it you've got to you've got to look at the facts as well dispassionately and the facts are all saying this will end it's horrible it's awful people are dying before their time for sure but it it will end and i I love this idea of what's within your control and what's without your control we talked about the Uh, the prayer before haven't we paul (laughs) As in ah, the pilgrim's, the pilgrim's prayer. prayer. <laughs> well, it's Easter. Yes, the pilgrim's yes. prayer. Give me the uh, the courage to change mm. what I can, and mm. the fortitude to bear with what I can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference. And it's funny; it all comes back to that. And the other thing that Mark said earlier, and I think you agreed, Paul, was the uh, 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 can't fight it. I remember in the old days, you used to have this this thing that if someone suffered from depression, uh, that their friend might say to them, particularly a male friend, with the best intentions, <laughs> "You've yeah. got to fight this old man." We've got to fight this thing. And um, I've been reading uh, a, a guy who has a website called Anxiety No More. And it's um, it's one of the best places for um, understanding about anxiety. The guy suffered terribly, chronically, for, for 10 years. And he was always taught to fight it. And by fighting it, you increase the anxiety. Of course you do. When you fight, you're, uh, you're in a state of arousal. So it's going to do the exact opposite uh, in an anxious person. I think when you've got this hidden enemy that you can't fight with brute force, the, the solutions are more internal than they ever were. I, I was talking to my um, my uncle about, uh, he's 92 in a, in a week's time, and he rang me up for a good half an hour. He'd normally, uh, you know, he's not, he's not verbose, put it that way. So it'd be like a five to 10 minute conversation. But he was clearly anxious about this uh, virus. And he, he lived through the Blitz. He lived, lived through the Second World War. So he, and he remembers that and I said god it must be like you know wartime back then and he said uh, no it's worse what mm. I think psychologically it probably is oh I mean I suppose you you still had the lack of control over when the, the bombing raids happened and so on but uh, you could be part of the war effort couldn't you in yeah. some way or another you get out there and be part of the effort I think that would help that help people uh and mm. there was no uh you know of course um social distancing so I, I guess the support that people gave to each other was 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 much more tangible yeah yeah you, you struggle with this tiny little thing that's all all around and can get into your lungs uh, as opposed to you can you could visualize hitler and all his and all these all these naughty cohorts god that's really interesting i'm really surprised that someone would say that because we were saying weren't we that some people were sort of predicting that mental health would improve during this pandemic Forgetting, of course, that a lot of what helped the sense of well-being in the war was this communal fight against this identified enemy that that isn't really there with this virus because it's all around us. There's something about not being able to see it. Well, it's it's you. I mean, I think you've hit all the things that are really important there. So people kind of a they understood the fight against fascism, lots of propaganda about how to do with it. You could see things happening. It made sense. I think a pandemic is incredibly scary because let's face it what was the most popular film that was on i think it was on amazon or netflix contagion yeah 
It's still in the top 10 on Netflix. I mean, it's not a particularly good movie either. It totally came out of the SARS. Uh, uh, the last SARS outbreak was in 2004, and the film came out in 2011, um, seven years later, yeah. But it's uh, if you watch it, which which I have, uh, it's it's remarkable uh, the parallels because of course it was a similar it's a similar virus. One of the things you said then, uh, going back to the the Great War when we all banded together with the Blitz spirit. Uh, yeah. One of the things that's been they, they did a survey just before mental health survey just before the UK did its proper lockdown. And the things you've been talking about came out in it, anxiety, worries, increased rates of depression, loneliness was a big thing that came out of it. Uh, one of the things they found that really helps is volunteering, joining a community mm. group, mm. talking to them about what you can do, what you'd like to do, trying to help in that way. Even if you yeah. don't really get out and do anything, you are doing something as part of a community. So volunteering, whenever I see lots of people going for volunteering, they're talking about it, they're going out in the streets delivering shopping, I'm thinking this is brilliant for mental and emotional health. And that's that replication of joining together from the Second World War. Well, I, I'm going to say that actually having to go into work every week, although people say, oh, God, that must be awful and anxiety-provoking, then they're forgetting about that side of it, which is I'm going into a, a community of people who are all going through the same thing and we're coming up with solutions together. And, and that, I think, is important. I think it's actually helpful to my mental health. Hmm, I even thought about volunteering for the Nightingale recently. I'm still mulling that over, but I know that that would be an amazing environment in which to work. Maybe it goes back to what your uncle was saying. Uh, if you feel, and this out of control thing, if you feel you are doing something however small to fight this thing, uh, that's, I, I suppose, necessarily going to make you feel better about it. Yeah. Good. I, I guess we might be we might be appro approaching the end. I, I don't mean of humanity. I mean of this. Hopefully podcast. not of this human of humanity. <laughs> that is brilliant that's brilliant uh, you just undone 50 minutes of anxiety management <laughs> and the conclusion is um i think yeah well the conclusion is that the, the pilgrim's prayer uh control the things you can uh volunteer in the community uh and realize it's going to be over yeah no, i think you, you summed it up perfectly then. I just reiterate to people listening that the, these are normal reactions that you're having in an abnormal event. And what we know is, to go more of the sort of prayer side of it, that this too will end. And it will. And people will look back. And when you look back and you're out of this anxious, fearful state, even if it's quite low level, you'll look back and realize, wow, you know, actually we did it. As a, as a, a nation, as a, as a world, we had to do quite extraordinary things that we didn't want to do, that we were scared, but we did it. You know, that, that time will come. I genuinely believe that. People will be more resilient. Yeah, fantastic. Great place to end, I think, Oliver. I couldn't agree more. So just to conclude by saying, please do get in touch with us. Tell us about the, the methods you found that have been useful uh, to control your anxiety during these difficult times. Get in touch with us at ytlf.com, that's whytlf.com, or by Facebook on the same handle, or Twitter. Tweet us, Oliver. 
tweet us. That's the one. But it would be great to hear your feedback. Brilliant summary from Mark. I, I can tell why Mark's good at his job, to be honest, Paul. I feel quite a lot better just for having heard his, mm. his, his calm mm. northern tones and wisdom, He's frankly. Very reassuring. I just, I'd like to point out that people are getting in contact with us to give us uh, their experiences of lockdown, good and bad. And we're going to we're gonna uh, go through some of those in the next uh, couple of episodes. But Mark will not be the last special guest. Indeed. And we might even have Mark back on again at some point in the future because I do want to do an episode on trauma all by itself. Oh, that would be great. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye.